A few years ago, Chinese television uh, aired a show called Interviews Before Execution. Interviews Before Execution. It was a hugely popular show, and it was actually among Henan's uh, top TV shows. The host, Ding Yue, uh, interviewed convicted criminals before their execution, oftentimes just hours before their execution, and they would get the opportunity to tell their story. What if Jesus was interviewed... Uh, after his conviction and right before the cross, what story would Jesus have told? Well, we don't need that interview because we have the Gospels and we know what was happening. And the Gospels tell the story, the life, the death and resurrection story of the most famous man that ever lived. The Gospels make it clear that Jesus not only anticipated his suffering and death, but that he came to earth to suffer and die. His heavenly Father sent him to rescue his children and to bring them home. So that's why Jesus came. And Jesus Christ's death row story is more captivating than 10 million episodes of interviews before execution. Here are two statements from Jesus that perhaps would have made that pre-execution interview. And uh, these two statements, they bring clarity to his trial, uh, his conviction and his crucifixion. Listen to what he said before it got really violent in Jerusalem. This is what Jesus said. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Now, didn't Pilate say to Jesus, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? That's what Pilate said, and Jesus recognized his authority, but it wasn't Pilate's authority that ultimately determined the cross. Jesus had the authority to lay his life down, and he was exercising at that moment ultimate authority. Considering all the plots of the Jews and the travesty of Roman justice, Jesus was choosing to lay his life down, and he would choose to take it up again. That's a unique story. Here's the second quote. This is an amazing quote. This is what Jesus told his disciples as they were traveling to Jerusalem just days before his trial. This is what he said. See, we were going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus knew everything that was coming. And he chose to walk into Jerusalem. He chose to walk into suffering. Last week, we saw that Jesus was flogged for us, wounded for us, mocked for us, shamefully exhibited for us, loathed for us, wrongfully alleged for us, courageously quiet for us, and given over by God for us. All of it was joyful. All of it was intentional. All of it was glorious surrender. And here's what I want you to get this week. Jesus was convicted for you. Jesus was convicted for you. He received the sentence of crucifixion for you. 
You were the guilty criminal. I was the guilty criminal. Standing before God's holy justice and Jesus took your place, Jesus took my place in the trial and he took your place as the convicted criminal so that he could receive, so that he could serve the sentence meant for you. Paul described it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake... Isn't that good? For our sake, he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was for our sake that God made Jesus a convicted criminal. God made him sin. Even though Jesus was entirely innocent of any guilt, that makes Jesus an innocent substitute for guilty convicts. All so that by grace, through faith in Christ, God would transfer the righteousness of Christ to us that we may no longer be guilty convicts, but instead we might become the righteousness of God. Think of that. That's the gospel. It was not merely the sentence of flogging or crucifixion or death, but the sentence to bear the weight of God's divine wrath and justice. You and I deserve to be convicted and killed by God. But God sent Jesus to walk the green mile so that you could walk into the arms of a loving father. Jesus was convicted for you because he was determined to get you to God. So what I'm calling you to this morning is to find your greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ who took your place so that you could be a son or daughter of God. I'm calling you to incredible joy in Christ who took your conviction so that you could be free. Now, I have watched some of the GOP debates on YouTube. And from them alone, because I haven't, I don't know if I've seen any of the Democratic Party debates, but from the GOP debates alone, politics can get ugly. Amen? What a debacle. Um, It's very interesting. Uh, And these are presidential candidates. But so it was with Jesus. So it was with Jesus. The political argument. In World War II, Japanese fighter pilots uh, purposefully flew their planes into uh, Navy uh, ships, Allied naval ships. And author Barrett Tillman said the kamikaze pilots were driven by three things. And this is what he said. Number one, devotion to the emperor, which many Japanese considered at the time a living god. Number two, they were driven by peer pressure. And number three, a desire to honor their family's name. So the Jewish leaders were similar because, uh, well, I guess except for one thing, they weren't committing physical kamikaze, they were committing moral kamikaze. They, They were devoted to their cause, their religion, their perspective. They acted together in blind religious zealotry, thinking that they were honoring God while they were proceeding to kill God's son. 
It was moral kamikaze. Give up your own soul in order to kill and silence the truth. That's what was happening. And here was this manipulative political argument that they used to do it. This was it. Verse 12. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now think about that. What would Caesar do if he found out that Pilate acquitted a revolutionary who was opposed to Rome? Would Caesar appreciate that? First century author Pliny the Younger called Tiberius Caesar, quote, the gloomiest of men. Tiberius was a suspicious man, and so Pilate had much to lose in an acquittal of Jesus. Political spin framed Jesus as a threat to Caesar, as a threat to the patriotism of Pilate, so Pilate really had a tough decision to make. Sometimes doing the right thing comes at great personal loss and risk. The Jewish authorities were playing Pilate. In fact, they were in a way putting themselves above Pilate um, as patriots of Rome. This is unbelievable. Calling his patriotism into question, which is so ironic considering they hated Rome. Partisan politics played a role in the conviction of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Pilate conceded not to preserve justice, but to preserve himself. So, the judgment seat. We come to the judgment seat. Verse 13 says that when Pilate heard this political spin, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement. The bema, or judgment seat. It was this throne-like seat. Uh, that was elevated on a platform and it was surrounded by steps and it was essentially the judicial bench of Pilate for the governor to make his edicts and it was uh, placed at a place called the stone pavement or in Aramaic, uh, Gabbatha. Uh, Today in Jerusalem, you can go there and check this out, but beneath the Ece Homo Pilgrim House and Ece Homo is Latin for behold the man, if you remember that, that phrase from Pilate. You can find there a flagstone with crude markings of a crown and the letter B for Basileus, or the Greek word for king. And it was called the king's game, which the Roman soldiers played with dice, and many believe that that is the location where the stone pavement was and where Jesus was convicted. And uh, it would have been where the Antonia Fortress was, which was this military barracks attached to the northwestern side of a corner of the temple. Yet others believe that the stone pavement was by Herod's palace, which was by the western wall of Jerusalem. We don't know the exact place of it, uh, but we see things around that that would validate the history behind this. When Pilate sat down on the judgment seat, I believe he was tormented. I think inside he was troubled of heart and conscience. In addition to all that was going on right there as he's sitting in the judgment seat, Matthew's gospel recounts that while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So even... His wife was pressuring him about Jesus. So on the one hand, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He knew the right thing to do. 
On the other hand, he faced a powerful and angry mob and allegations of being no friend of Caesar. So depending on his decision, you can see his predicament, his power, position, livelihood, and life could all be over. There was a lot at stake. And, And I believe Pilate was tormented because he knew the right thing to do. But he feared the consequences as he sat on that judgment seat. He danced with sin. Finally, Pilate was ready to make his decision. And John gave us two little historical details that have caused debate among people and scholars. In verse 14, John wrote, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was the sixth hour. Okay, the day of preparation. The day of preparation. Now, the Bible never contradicts itself. But as Christians, we must admit that when we're reading through the text, we come to things that are hard to square with other passages of Scripture. And sometimes it actually looks like the Bible contradicts itself. But that being said, with careful Bible study, with careful research... Uh, plausible explanations, likely explanations, can be given for these apparent or seeming contradictions of Scripture. The inconsistencies that, that might appear to be inconsistencies. There are logical explanations for these things. Logical answers exist, but you need to study, you need to think, you need to read a little bit in order to get what's behind this. So here are the two issues in verse 14. Number one, what day is John referring to exactly? And number two, why is John's time frame different than the other Gospels? Those are good questions. So what what day is it? If in verse 14 the word Passover refers to the Passover meal, which some take it to mean, then the day of preparation would refer to the day when the lambs were taken and slaughtered for the Passover meal. And that would connect very, very nicely to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed for the sins of the world, of God's people on that same day. But as wonderful as that connection would seem, it presents several problems, several things that we wonder about. Jesus and his disciples had already eaten the Passover meal on Thanksgiving, or on Thanksgiving, (laughs) Now, I'm mixing history. Somehow the pilgrims always work their way in. It was Thanksgiving. That's why we celebrate Thanksgiving. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Just erase that, guys, from the... Don't put that online. Just kidding. All right, let's try that again. They ate the Passover meal on Thursday evening. So were the Gospels wrong about that detail? Did they eat some other meal? Was it not the Passover meal in the upper room? No, they did eat the Passover meal. Another angle on this is the word parascue, or day of preparation, often precedes the Sabbath, not necessarily feasts like Passover. Another consideration is how to translate the phrase of the Passover in verse 14. Does Passover refer to the meal of Passover or the entire Passover feast during that week? John likely meant the Passover festival, which would mean the day of preparation refers to Friday, the day before the Sabbath during the Passover week, 
a probable interpretation. Now, that view is strengthened by Mark 15, verse 42, which says this, and when evening had come, and that was the evening when Jesus went to the cross and was crucified, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Okay? Luke then Uh, Luke 23, 54 is also helpful. Luke wrote, it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. So what I'm getting at is the Gospels agree. The Gospels agree. They don't contradict one another. Jesus ate the Passover meal on Thursday night and was tried, sentenced, and crucified. He was buried on Friday, the day of preparation for the Sabbath during Passover week. Part of the reason they wanted to get the bodies down off the cross and get get his body taken care of. He was in the grave Friday, Saturday, and Sunday until he rose again. The Gospels agree on that, even though it appears that they might not agree or there could be discrepancies. Now, the time John mentioned is is a trickier issue. Okay, Mark recorded that it was the third hour, 9 o'clock a.m., when Jesus was crucified. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that it was the sixth hour, or 12 o'clock noon, that darkness fell over the land while Jesus was on the cross. But John wrote in verse 14 that Jesus was still with Pilate at about the sixth hour, or about 12 o'clock noon. Do you understand the issue here? John's time seems to contradict the other Gospels. Well, we got to think through this stuff Scholars suggest different solutions to this, but consider what New Testament scholar Dr. Leon Morris said about this. Quote, it is more likely that in neither Mark nor John is the hour to be regarded as more than an approximation. People in antiquity did not have clocks or watches, and the reckoning of time was always very approximate. The third hour may denote nothing more firm than a time about the middle of the morning, while about the sixth hour can well signify getting on towards noon. Late morning would suit both expressions unless there were some reason for thinking that either was being given with more than usual accuracy. No such reason exists here. Morris makes a good point. Time was handled differently in the first century than it is today. And notice that John didn't say it was the sixth hour. He said it was about the sixth hour, an approximation. Now, you might be thinking, who cares? You're going to pause to explain that? We didn't even know there was an issue. Thanks for letting us know. Now we doubt the Bible more. All right? What's the big deal? Here's why these little details matter. These are the little details that scholars and many, many people use to exploit or discredit, they exploit these points to discredit the Bible, to undercut the Bible's authority. Issues like this are often used by atheists and agnostics who say there are contradictions in the Bible. There's all kinds of mistakes. We all know that. Don't you know that as a Christian? And sometimes, I think this is true, it's been in my experience, some atheists and agnostics know more about these little issues in a way to discredit the Bible than the Christians who say they believe the Bible and base their life on it. If you talk to a sharp atheist and a sharp agnostic, they will know details like this, and you will have to have an answer. And many times we're like, 
I didn't even honestly know that was in there. I didn't know that the Gospels didn't look like they agreed. We need to have good answers. We need to think and be rational. If we're surprised by something in the Bible that seems to contradict itself, we need to be ready to humbly, very, very humbly, very charitably, and diligently research the matter so we have good answers. And we need to know what we believe, and we need to know that what we believe in the Bible holds up under scrutiny. There are answers. Overwhelming evidence confirms the Bible's accuracy, and there are credible answers to these seeming contradictions. Here's a tip. If a non-Christian, really anybody, all right, could be a Christian too, asks you a question about the Bible that you do not know the answer to, and you're put on the spot. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're like, oh man, I have no idea what they're saying. I don't know how to answer that. Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. Here's the tip. This is what you do. You say something like this. You know, that's a great question. I'm not exactly sure how to answer you, but let me do some research, and I'll get back to you on that. That's all you got to do. That's easy. And, and that's even humble. You know, that's a really good question. You stumped me on that one, but let me do some research. I'll get back to you. And then study your Bible. Talk to mature Christians. Read some good uh, articles on the topic, and then get back to them. Circle back and give them a good answer. Okay? It's a great way to learn. You know, I've, I've had people send me emails. They say, hey, what about this? I'm like, oh, man. I'm just... So I take time to study it out, and I try to give them a good answer and to think it through. Not having all the answers immediately is okay for a Christian. It's not okay to be lazy and to not even try to get a good answer, to do, to do nothing. That's not okay. If the Bible is unreliable, then so is the conviction of Christ, and so is our redemption. So the Bible is credible. The Bible is reliable. There are good answers. Here's how it went. Thursday evening, Jesus ate the Passover with his disciples. Friday, the day of preparation, Jesus was sentenced and slaughtered. Saturday was the Sabbath. Sunday, he rose. And these details, they help mark the historicity of these events. They're credible, and they make the narrative come alive for us when we dig into these details. The story just becomes so much more real. That's why we want to study the Bible and, and preach the Bible. Pilate continued to deride the Jews, the sarcastic words, the sarcastic words. This is interesting. Pilate was relentless in mocking the Jews. He said to them, behold your king, shall I crucify your king? Now, in that, can you sense the irony? Can you sense the bitterness of Pilate? The irony was Jesus is king of the Jews. In fact, Jesus is the king of the universe. And the bitterness was coming out from Pilate because the Jews didn't want Jesus as their king. They were rejecting him as his king, and yet Pilate keeps bringing it up. Your king, your king, this is your king. He's just mocking them. Sarcasm, nasty And there stood this bloody and beaten man dressed up like a clown in a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate used him to tease the Jews. And the crowd yelled on, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And and when Pilate said, very sarcastically, shall I crucify your king, the Jews revealed at that moment just how far their hearts had moved from God. 
the great apostasy. What the chief priest said in verse 15 is so striking, and I would guess that Annas and Caiaphas were there. Perhaps they were the ones talking. We don't know. The people had turned from God. They had abandoned God, and their words condemned them. They said, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Think about the implications of a first century Jew saying, we have no king but Caesar. The most powerful Jews in Jerusalem, Jews belonging to the Sanhedrin, Jews oppressed by the strong hand of Rome, Jews who long to see Israel break free from the tyranny of Rome to triumph once again like the days of David and Solomon, were now swearing allegiance to Caesar. Even worse, had they forgotten that God was their king, that the Messiah would come to rule them. They committed a great apostasy. Back in Judges, Gideon, the great judge and warrior, had just killed Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Rule over us. To which Gideon responded, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. 1 Samuel 8 tells how the elders of Israel asked Samuel to appoint for them a king like all the other nations had. And they wanted to be like the world. And God told Samuel, they have rejected me from being king over them. From the beginning of time, God had been the one true and faithful king of his people. And many times his people have looked toward another king. Even the earthly kings that God appointed for Israel only ever pointed to a greater king that would come, the sovereign king, Jesus Christ. So there the awaited Messiah, the awaited king, the chosen one was standing being sentenced to the Roman cross. The Psalms are filled with songs of God as king. Psalm ten sixteen: the Lord is king forever and ever. Who is this king of glory? Psalm 24, 8 asks, and it answers, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Psalm 24, 19 answers, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Psalm 29, 10 says, the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Psalm 42, verse 2 and verse 7 say, for the Lord, the most high, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. And we could go on and on about the kingship of God. Then there are Old Testament kingly prophecies like Zechariah 9.9, which foretell the coming of the Messiah who would rule God's people as king. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Couldn't they see? Couldn't they see? The chief priests claimed to believe all of that. It's our book. The Old Testament is ours. We are experts in that information. We have no king but Caesar. They had turned from God and his word, and because 
it served their purpose, their agenda. They bowed the knee to Caesar. This is what people do today, even very religious people. They turn from God and they bow in submission to their fleshly, worldly pursuits. D.A. Carson noted this, by vehemently insisting they have no king but Caesar, they are not only rejecting Jesus' messianic claims, they are abandoning Israel's messianic hope as a matter of principle, rejecting any claimant. We have no king, leaving no room for another king, and finally disowning the kingship of the Lord himself, end of quote. We have no king but Caesar. They had turned their backs on God. This is what religion is detached from the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is empty. It is godless in an attempt to protect and preserve their religious traditions, their religious ceremonies, their religious systems to really, at the heart, get what they wanted They lost sight of God and actually turned their back on Him. That's what people do. Churches fight and split over things like music style or order of worship or the color of the carpet. Their agenda becomes more important than the gospel. They tighten their fists around tradition. They tighten their fists around non-essential things and effectively abandon the gospel to get what they want, what ultimately, in the end, doesn't matter. Green, blue, black, purple. Can we still not worship the Lord Jesus Christ in truth, in spirit and in truth? They bow the knee to some Caesar instead of God. Tom Rainer gave some Uh, real-life examples of church fights in his article uh, named 25 Silly Things Church Members Fight Over. One congregation, I kid you not, spent 45 minutes in heated debate over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown, and either two, three, or four drawers. Uh, Another church fought over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. I didn't know we knew what Jesus looked like. We don't have a picture of him, okay? These are things that people are willing to almost die on this hill. It doesn't take much for us in the church to get our eyes off of God and the truth of God's word and onto ourselves. Is there anything religious in your life that you are keeping hold of, gripping with all that you're worth, that is actually blinding you to the magnificence of the glory of God. Getting in your way. You you make non-essentials like that is something that I really think is important. That is not even from the biblical text. And, And it's actually, as you hold on to it, blinding you from the greater glory of God. We need to be very careful. We need to make sure that our excitement over religion, our excitement over church, is actually love for God and gratitude that Christ was convicted for us. All throughout John, we we have seen very religious people cling to their religion instead of clinging to Christ. And their selfish ambition drove them to crucify the king of glory. Are you bowing to Caesar or to Christ? My dear friend, Bow to Christ alone and hold everything else loosely. 
open hands. It can still matter to you. Just be careful. Hold it openly. Focus on Christ because he was convicted for you. This might be tough to hear, but I think it's helpful to think about many people in the church have rejected Jesus a long time ago. They have bowed the knee to Caesar, and yet they still continue with their religious activity. Much of the church in America has abandoned the gospel and has committed apostasy. Just look around. All you need to do is open your ears to hear what professing Christians say they believe and test it against the word of God, and you will see how far the church has come how far it has gone away. Too many have deserted the truth of God and bowed the knee to Caesar, to the philosophy of the world, but for some reason they didn't want to keep up this Christian facade that doesn't work. They are as Paul describes, and I think this is who so many people in the church are, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, whole, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's the kicker, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. I will grab on to my tradition of religion with everything that I have, but I will not love Christ. Jerusalem Church, do you love Jesus Christ? Have you bowed to him? Do you cherish him more than all the other things that the Bible doesn't even really talk about? There are the people who uphold church and religion and tradition from one side of their mouth, but out of the other they cry, we have no king but Caesar. Let us make sure that our religion is Christ alone. Our allegiance is with Christ. He was convicted for us, and because our joy is in him, we weigh our religion against scripture, and in the essentials, we remain unwavering. We will not move on the essentials of scripture, and in the non-essentials, the thing that the, the scriptures don't approach or don't talk about or gives us Christian freedom, we remain open, we remain charitable, we remain loving each other, unified in Christ, not in the color of the carpet. Let us cherish his conviction for us, which produces more than the appearance of godliness. It produces actual godliness. Lastly, the conviction of grace. Excuse me. But he delivered him up to them to be crucified. That was it. He was convicted. Jesus would die. Luke 23, verse 25 says, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. You see, the Romans crucified Jesus but it was to fulfill the desire of the Jews. By choosing to pacify the Jews through crucifying Jesus, Pilate was rejecting Jesus. He was choosing earthly pleasures over eternal pleasures. Jews and Gentiles alike rejected the king of glory and crucified him. We crucified him. The point is the conviction of grace... When I, when I say conviction of grace, I mean two things by that. Number one, when Jesus was sentenced to death, it was God being gracious to us. 
His sentence led to his death, which leads to our redemption. It was, it was a conviction of grace. It was a gracious conviction for us, if you can wrap your mind around what I'm saying. Secondly, I'm using grace as a synonym for Jesus. Jesus was the incarnation of the grace of God. John 1.14 says that Jesus is, the, is full of grace and truth. 1 Timothy 1.14 says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Grace is simply the unmerited favor of God. You could say more about it, but simply put, that's it. And Jesus is the embodiment of the divine favor of God given to us and given for us. He is God's grace, a gift. And when we have Jesus, we have the fullness of the grace of God. Jesus was convicted for us so that God could give us grace upon grace upon grace. Jesus was convicted for you. And I want you to see how glorious and gracious his substitutionary conviction is for you. He was convicted in your place so you could be acquitted and belong to God. That, my friends, should stir immense joy in your heart and in your life. It should produce in you a ravenous desire to obey him for his glory. I just want to do what my convicted but now acquitted through the cross, the one who identifies with me and takes me to God. He was flogged, wounded, mocked, shamefully exhibited, loathed, wrongfully alleged, courageously quiet, given over by God, and convicted for you so that you could become the righteousness of God, empowered by His Spirit for radical acts of obedience. Cherish His conviction for you and live for Him. Father, You are good. Thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, who is supreme and is awesome. We love Him. He's done so much for us, and I pray that joy would motivate us, grace would motivate us to live radical lives of obedience because we look to the cross and see that he was convicted in our place, he suffered in our place, he died in our place. That was for us. Your wrath was for us, but you turned it from us and poured it out on your son that he could conquer all in order to win us and bring us to you a loving Father. I pray that you comfort Jerusalem Church. Everybody here, comfort them. Encourage them. Compel them to radical obedience as your joy and your spirit work in them for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.